I'm Edaena Salinas, and this is the Women in Tech Show, a show where women in tech talk about technology and career development. Today's guest is Blythe Rocher. Blythe graduated from a PhD in physical chemistry and went from being a scientist to a software developer. In this episode, we talk about this career switch and the steps she took to get immersed in the field. I like this conversation a lot because I think these aspects also apply to people that are already working in the tech industry and they're looking at working in a different area of technology. We also talked about her work on APIs for the Hillary Clinton campaign website, among other interesting projects. I hope you like this episode. Blythe Rocher, welcome to the show. It's great to have you here today. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sure. So let's talk about um, the early point in your career. You went from scientist to software development, and your university background is in science and chemistry. How did you get started on software development? Sure. Well, uh, so I was working as a postdoc. So I went all the way through grad school. I got a PhD. And then the next step after that is to do what's called a postdoc, which requires a PhD. And Mm -hmm. as soon as I started at that position, I started looking for uh, full-time, like, professor positions. Mm -hmm. And there were positions that I was qualified for, but I sort of felt like I was going to have to make a lot of compromises, Um, Mm -hmm. either moving to somewhere uh, in the middle of nowhere where I didn't know anyone or... Um, taking a large, you know, working very hard for very little pay. Um, mm-hmm. So I sort of started to think about maybe maybe there's better options. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was I was using Twitter at the time, and I knew a lot of people in technology already, um, like friends and family. Or- yeah, friends and also strangers on Twitter. Oh, okay. Um, and I knew there was a lot of demand for developers. Mm-hmm. Um, what year was this? Uh, let's see. This was about to the end of 2011, 2012. Oh, okay. Um, so I thought, you know, maybe this is something that I could do. Like, what if I start learning how to be a developer? Maybe I could get a job doing that because there seems to be a lot of demand. Um, had you taken any programming classes like in high school or in high school? I had, exposure? Yeah. In high school, I had done like an HTML class. Oh, OK. Um, so it was very, very basic. Uh, mm-hmm. Here's how to put a thing on a web page and like change the color of the font and stuff like that. Yeah, I had something similar like in eighth grade. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, it was fun. It was it was definitely good exposure, but. I would not have considered myself a programmer by any means. Mm -hmm. Um, So I started looking. um, My husband was also a developer, and I asked him, you know, I asked him to give me a list of what are all the things that I need to learn to be a professional developer, to get a job. Mm -hmm. Um, And I remember I recorded this, this list that he was telling me, and it seemed like such a huge, long list. And I was, I met, I remember thinking, I'm never going to learn all of those things. What were some of the things from that list? Do you remember? Sure. So uh, to build a, a dynamic website, you need to be able to uh, store information like in a database or some, some sort of data storage. 
Mm -hmm. um, you need to be able to have a way to put information into that storage mm -hmm. um, and also to retrieve information from that. Mm -hmm. And then you also need a way to sort of display that information on a, on a web page. Um, mm -hmm. So sort of all of the what we call CRUD actions, um, mm -hmm. create, um, retrieve, update, and delete. Um, those mm -hmm. are all sort of, if you want a, a dynamic uh, site, web application, those are the actions that you need to be able to do. Mm -hmm. um, and also and there's, there was other things like CSS, uh, which is how, how the, the information looks on the page. And mm -hmm. of course, HTML still and JavaScript. I didn't really know anything about JavaScript, all, all these sorts of things. So was he a web developer? He was. He had been doing it for a while. Um, oh, okay. Because you mentioned a lot of web aspects, but not like it's 2011. There's already smartphones, so a lot of people went into doing mobile apps. Mm -hmm. he, so right, he was a web developer, so he sort of knew that area. Okay. Okay, I see. And have you felt you've had uh, more career opportunities by switching from academia? I think so, definitely. Uh, yeah. I have. I have a lot of job security. Uh, mm -hmm. If there, if if for some reason I didn't like my job, um, mm -hmm. I I feel like it wouldn't be too difficult to find a new job, yeah. especially or even do a remote job, which is such a huge contrast from the academia. Like you can be traveling and working remotely. Right, that's correct. And I've actually yeah. already worked um, two jobs as a remote developer, so I do oh, I have nice. experience with that. Were you traveling at that time, or? So th there's a lot of flexibility. You can work from wherever and pretty much mm -hmm. whenever, as long as you're making it to meetings and things like that and getting your work done. Mm -hmm. Did you see at least some similarities between academia and software development? Uh, definitely, particularly in science, because it's all science is all about problem solving. You, you have an idea about you know, the way you think the world works. Um, mm -hmm. And then you design a, a test or an experiment to see, okay, does it actually work that way? Mm -hmm. um, and then you can run the experiment and get the results. Uh, web development is the same way, particularly for troubleshooting. Um, if you mm. if you're trying to figure out how, how does how does something work? I think it works this way. How do I test if it works that way? Um, and then you can confirm or or deny what you think is happening. Um, the mm -hmm. biggest difference was that uh, the problems I was solving in academia took much longer to solve. So sometimes a year to publish a paper, whereas oh. in development that the uh, lifetime of each problem that I'm trying to solve is much shorter, um, either maybe an hour or a day or maybe the longest problem I ever tried to solve was like a week. To get results can also take much longer. Right. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit more about software development and learning about software. There might be people listening that want to get started on that or even people that want to switch to a different focus within the technology field. Like they've worked a lot on back end and now they want to do more front end. Mm -hmm. When you decided that you were going to focus on software development, what was your workflow to learn those new technologies? Sure. Uh, well, my biggest thing was I already had a job, and so I, I needed to keep working that job or um, 
if I could switch to a new job that would pay me to be a developer. Um, then, was that an academia job? Or? Right, that was the postdoc. Um, oh, that was okay. a paid position. So okay. um, everything was sort of nights and weekends for me because I still had a day job. Um, and, on, and it had to stay that way until I was able to get be paid to be a developer. So that was my, that was sort of my goal. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time there weren't a lot of boot camps, uh, which are very popular now. Um, these programming, yes. uh, I guess, programs that sort of you pay them and they teach you in, in mm -hmm. sort of a school like setting. Um, yes. There weren't a lot around at the time. So that also wasn't really an option for me. Mm -hmm. um, so my biggest thing was uh, how do I learn all this stuff? for free uh, on nights and weekends. <laughs> oh, um, I see. On your free time. Right, right. And for as little money as possible. Yeah. Um, so I started looking for as many free resources as I could find. Mm -hmm. um, and luckily, there's a lot of information on the internet. Um, yes. The hardest part, I think, is, is focusing your uh, study time um, and building, building things up over time. Um, so when I started, uh, I used a, a, a free website called Code Academy. Um, and what, oh, I've heard of that. Yeah, what's yeah. nice is it lets you try out a bunch of different um, programming languages. And also, if you want to do CSS or HTML, you can try out a bunch of different things without even installing anything on your computer. It's all just sort of in the browser. Oh, yeah. And it gives yeah. you a little taste of each one. Um, so I started uh -huh. with that, and I, I was doing every, pretty much every lesson they had at the time mm -hmm. um, and trying to figure out what do I like, what, you know, is this something I can do as my job forever? Uh, mm -hmm. I don't know. Do I like it? Um, and so I did that for a long time, and it got to a point like where for I sort a year of, or What was that? Like for a year or? Uh, no, maybe several months. Oh, okay. Um, but, you know, every week there's new there were new lessons coming out. Um, mm -hmm. I'm not sure about the rate of of new lessons now, but I would I was working pretty much every every night on on those sorts of things. Um, mm -hmm. And I got to a point where I felt like I wasn't really learning more from doing the exercises. I felt like it was um, just like, OK, well, I solved this problem, but did I really learn from that? Okay. And was it like mini exercises or was it, because um, now a lot of the tutorials are, they walk you through building a web application. Mm -hmm. They, they was it, it was smaller than building an entire web application um, oh, at the okay. time. Mm -hmm. So I was looking for something like, what is the next step to, to help me keep learning? Um, and mm -hmm. so I looked for some like free programming classes online. So one of the websites that I used was Udacity. Oh, that is great. That I love Udacity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I started taking, you know, an online course there. Yeah. Um, and one of the problems with that was when I started taking that class, I didn't know about version control. Oh, uh, so okay. Git or subversion or basically a way to uh, make changes and then save them and then I could keep revert. Yeah, revert and go back to a previously saved like checkpoint. Um, yes. So I was taking this class, this Udacity class, and I mm -hmm. had probably been building, this one actually was building an application, um, mm -hmm. and it was in, in Python, the Python programming language. Mm -hmm. And I probably got about a month in 
to this class and building this application. And it, and I made a change and it broke the application and it, you know, it wouldn't even render the page anymore. And I wasn't sure what I had changed and I couldn't figure out how to undo it. And I didn't have version control to sort of take me back to, to my, my previous working state. Yeah. So I realized that I had ruined a month's worth of work on this web application that I had been working very hard on. Oh, did you figure it out or, or did you mostly just say, I'm going to use version control from now on? Well, at the time, I didn't figure it out. I sort of just cried at my desk and then oh, no. and then I got discouraged from programming for a little while. And then how did you get back on track yeah. after that? So I took a little break, um, maybe okay. maybe three weeks of not programming because I had been working sort of every every night and on the weekends trying really hard. And so I was like, oh, I need a break. Um, but you know, I still, this was still a goal of mine. So I looked for other resources. Um, and one of the, one of the resources that I found on the internet, uh, was, and you know, this whole time I was on Twitter and like reading tweets from other people in tech and like, what, what's out there, what's happening. Um, and someone had posted about rails girls, um, which is a, a workshop that helps people build their first rails application. Um, mm-hmm. and it's aimed at women, uh, but it's not always just for women. Um, mm-hmm. and so women or, or little girls, uh, like it's, teenage. it is, it's a bit of a misnomer. It is geared more towards women. Um, even though it's called rails girls, um, mm-hmm. when I went, so it's a workshop, um, it's usually a full day workshop. And when I went, it was all, it was all women. Um, they weren't it, at the youngest, I think was maybe like a late teenager, mm-hmm. um, so, okay. uh, so what's nice about it was that all of the curriculum is free and online. Um, mm-hmm. And so I found the curriculum and I, it was a tutorial, so I could start sort of working through that. Mm-hmm. And so that was exciting. Um, and I made it pretty far. And what's nice is it teaches you about Git, mm-hmm. uh, which is version control. And it also teaches you how to deploy your brand new Rails application that you built to oh. um, to Heroku, which had a free version. Oh, um, I see. So it, it's not a very in-depth tutorial, but what's great about it is it lets you get a lot of progress done in a short amount of time, mm-hmm. and you feel accomplished. You feel like, wow, I built this. And that's what's mm-hmm. great about Rails Girls to me. It's more realistic because it also has version control and right. other things that you see in industry right. projects. Right. Yeah. So, uh, so I did that and, and I thought, okay, well now how do I build like a resume? How do I get to where somebody wants to hire me? And I was like, well, I guess I have to work on a personal project. Um, Mm -hmm. and so I'm, I'm not very like entrepreneurial. I don't have a lot of ideas like that, but I do have a dog that I have to walk three times a day. Mm -hmm. And so one day I had this idea, okay, what if I'm walking my dog? What if I could just walk the other people's dogs in the neighborhood while I'm already walking Mm -hmm. my dog? Mm-hmm. Or what if they, if they're already walking their dog, what if they could just come and walk my dog? Um, mm-hmm. So I was like, I know, I'll build an application to help uh, coordinate this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so that I had that idea, an epiphany, and then mm-hmm. I, and so I had only done the Rails Girls tutorial, and I didn't have enough knowledge to like figure out how do I build this dog walker application just from mm-hmm. that amount of knowledge. Um, and so I was missing, I was missing the ability to sort of apply that information, apply that tutorial. 
Yeah. Um, and so I thought, well, I need to keep learning. So I looked for some more free resources. And the next one I found was called uh, Rails Tutorial. It's a book by Michael Hartle, and it's also available for free online. Oh, okay. And this was like sort of like the Rails Girls tutorial, but much more in depth, um, mm -hmm. a lot more information, and it was it was much more challenging. Um, and what I loved about it was um, not only does it cover version control um, with Git and also deploying to Heroku, um, it also covers automated testing um, in in Ruby oh, yeah. and Rails, which is what is a huge thing. You re you really sort of need to know how to to test to be a professional developer these days. Yes. Um, and so I was working. Was, Go ahead. Was that the first time you found out about automated testing? That was. Oh wow. That was. And so in the book, um, he leads you through each chapter, and he says, "Okay, well, we're going to build." Um, essentially a, a clone of Twitter. And uh, so he, work, he leads you through sort of a test-driven development of this, this Twitter clone. Mm -hmm. um, and so you start with the test, and he shows you how to write a test, and then he shows you how to write the code to make the test pass. And then once you have built like a little feature, he says, okay, now is a good time to commit that and then deploy that also. Um, and so that was really the closest resource that I found to at an actual development workflow. Mm, um, more complete workflow. Right. And I mean, I'm a professional developer now, and I'm, I'm essentially doing that every day. Mm -hmm. Wow. So eventually, you worked your way up by doing these tutorials. And then what, once you were in a company, you were just learning from other people, right? Yeah, so so I finished the Rails tutorial, and that gave me enough understanding of how to apply that information to my dog walker idea. Mm -hmm. um, and so I could sort of, I built the shell of the application, and then over time I could sort of think, okay, what's another feature that I want to add? I, I would like to be able to see dogs on a map so that I can mm -hmm. walk nearby dogs instead of far away dogs. Mm -hmm. um, and so then I had to figure out how do I show something on a map? Um, mm -hmm. And luckily there's, there is a gem for that, which is a, you know, a, a Ruby library to help you display things oh. on a Google map. So I figured oh. that out. And then I thought, okay, well, you know, when I sign up to walk somebody else's dog, they should get an email that mm -hmm. says, hey, Blythe is going to walk your dog. Mm -hmm. So then I had to figure out, how do you send emails in a Rails application? I don't know. Oh, okay. um, so I figured that out. And I was sort of just yeah. building up features to make this thing a, a better and better application. A reality. Yeah. Yes. And these, these are all things that you need to know as a developer. Like, yes. uh, almost every website you visit needs to know how to send emails. And some of yeah. them have maps and things like that. So. Yeah. Did you actually end up using this app a lot, or was it mostly uh, good motivation? And it was mostly good, good motivation. It looked pretty terrible because I'm not very good at designing. I'm I'm much more of a backend developer. Okay. Um, but it, it was functional. Had had any users come to to use the website, they could have used it, but mm -hmm. I, it wasn't very pretty. Okay. Which is also an important thing because sometimes I also find myself like. I want to start something, but then I'm like, don't think I'll just do this because I'll, I'll learn how to 
wire up Facebook authentication, mm-hmm. etc., mm-hmm. which are important things. It doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're going to release and share with other people. Right, right. It's like a stepping stone. Right. And the best part about all of this was that as I was building these things, I was I was pushing up the commits to GitHub so people could see the code that I was writing. And they could also see that I was committing code, you know, almost every day that I was continuously working on this thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then because because I was able to deploy it for free on Heroku, uh, mm-hmm. they could also see what the website looked like and like see progress if they wanted to. Um, so it really was sort of like a resume at that point. Um, and I could link to these, you know, GitHub and the website from from my own personal website. Mm-hmm. Were you getting any feedback from GitHub users? No, nobody came to to code review me or anything, but it was at least there. So if people needed to see, um, they could. Mm-hmm. And so that's what actually helped me get an internship um, at this company called Big Nerd Ranch. They're based in Atlanta, Georgia. That project. Right. So what it oh. showed was that I was able to build build a web application and yes. that I was able to uh, learn how to do new features that I didn't know how to do. So beyond just what a tutorial can show you mm-hmm. um, and things like that. Commit frequently. Right, frequently. So. And also that I was working on this thing on my own. Nobody nobody was driving me to do this thing. I was self-motivated. Mm, yeah. Um, I should also say that during this time that I was working on building the application, I was also going to meetups and talking to people on Twitter and asking for advice and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. For me, to, to me, getting your first job is really about two aspects. One, mm-hmm. um, showing that you can do some sort of development, that you're proficient a little bit, but also yes. by networking with, with people. Um, yes. Because even if you're the best developer, if you don't know anyone, it's going to be hard to find a job. Yeah. Also, how to learn from other people, like you mentioned, you're contacting strangers, right? And just asking for advice and right. applying it for yourself, right? Like, what's a book for you know to t- teach me more about testing or something yes. like that? Yeah, and definitely. people were very nice. That's great. Yeah. So uh, you mentioned earlier that the design wasn't that good and that you were uh, more of a back-end person. So I wanted to talk a little bit more about your most recent work, which mm-hmm. involves backend. Mm-hmm. I saw you, were, you worked on the backend portion, for example, for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, which I think it's pretty cool. That's right. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you, what are some aspects involved when you're developing an API? Sure. Um, to tell you a little bit about that, I worked for a company called The Groundwork which mm-hmm. existed before the Hillary campaign existed at all. Um, okay. And we wanted to set up the application before she de- announced that she was running um, so that she, on as soon as she announced, she could start taking donations and organizing events and things like that. Oh, okay. Um, so, the co- so you knew about the announcement before or how does that Well, work? I didn't really know. I just was hoping. Um, oh, okay. So I, I met um, I met Harper Reed, who was the CTO of the second Obama campaign, at, and yes. we were speaking at a conference together. Mm-hmm. And uh, he introduced me to Michael Slaby, who was the CTO, I believe, of the first Obama campaign. 
Um, and when I spoke with Michael Slaby, he said, well, we're putting together this organization, the groundwork, and we don't know if there's going to be a campaign. Uh, we don't know anything. And this job could end in the next three months or so. So, you know, there's a lot of unknowns here. But mm -hmm. if you're willing to, uh, you, you're, you're welcome to join us. I see. Um, and so it was really a big gamble. I didn't know. I didn't even know if there would be a campaign, but I thought this is probably my best chance to work on it. And mm -hmm. this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So I'm going to do it. Yes, definitely. Um, so go ahead. When you were um, developing the APIs, have you ever dealt with uh, scalability aspects? For example, an API that returns thousands of results like would you solve this with pagination or have you dealt with similar things yeah you're right you're right pagination is a great way to sort of limit um mm -hmm. how taxing a request is on the system mm -hmm. um, another thing you can do is use caching uh, mm -hmm. which is instead of always hitting uh, the servers and the and the back end to request that information every single time a person makes a request Mm -hmm. uh, what you can do is the first person that makes the request, they, they will actually incur that, that cost on the servers. Mm -hmm. um, but what you can do is you can store that response, um, mm -hmm. which is called caching it. Uh, and then when, you know, maybe 300 more people come and make the exact same request, uh, mm -hmm. they get that stored response. And you don't actually have to go and get all that information from the database again. Mm -hmm. And when you're developing an API, do you usually talk first with the front-end people, or how, how does it work? Or do they adapt to your APIs? Sure. Well, it, it, there's usually a lot of um, product conversations that mm -hmm. go hand-in-hand. Hand. Um, so maybe there's somebody who knows uh, the, what they want to build, um, a product person. They say, well, this is the problem we need to solve, and this is how we think we want to solve it. Um, and how, how might we build an API um, mm -hmm. to, to, do, to solve that problem? And you sort of start brainstorming and you say, okay, well, here's a model and here's a relationship that might represent the data that you would be interested in. Mm -hmm. um, and then you think about the endpoints for how to um, do, perform those CRUD actions. So create, read, update, and delete on those mm -hmm. models. Um, so right there, that tells you which API endpoints you need. Mm -hmm. um, and then you can also talk to the front end about, okay, what, what is information that you want to display about this model? So like mm -hmm. what, what attributes does this model need to have? Um, mm -hmm. So if it's a person, maybe, maybe you need their name uh, mm -hmm. or their address where they live or something like that. Mm -hmm. um, attributes like that. Um, and you sort of plan out, well, what does this product look like? to mm -hmm. um, the end user, what does it need to look like? What information needs to get stored on the, on the back end mm -hmm. um, so that you can provide that information to the front end to display? Mm -hmm. Do you see any difference when the user is using a mobile client versus a laptop? Like, are there any differences in the APIs? Do you have mobile-specific APIs or...? Uh, I haven't actually specifically built a, a different API for desktop versus mobile. Usually mm -hmm. you would let um, the front end handle what is getting displayed in those different situations. 
Oh, okay. Um, so maybe if you were building a mobile application, mm -hmm. um, they would still be requesting from the same API endpoints, mm -hmm. um, and maybe just not displaying this the all of the information. They would just select what they're interested in. Oh, okay. So it doesn't really affect the amount of data being sent or something. Uh, there are ways to um, change an API, API response based on what information you want returned, mm -hmm. um, but that's not always for every endpoint. Oh, okay. And have you worked mostly with um, microservices? I have worked a lot with microservices. Mm -hmm. um, Why do you think they, they are not always the answer? Why do I think they're not what? They're not. Why do you think microservices are not always the answer? Uh, why aren't they always the answer? Uh, well, when you are dealing with microservices, there are additional considerations that you need to think about that, that is sort of built in if you're building everything all in one application. Um, mm -hmm. For example, um, I, one time I, I found a bug where the front end was sending a, a string, um, which is like a string of text. Um, and the back end was expecting an integer, which is like a number. Um, mm -hmm. And because, because those were two separate teams, there was a front end team and a back end team. Mm -hmm. And because there weren't automated tests to cover that case of the front end, you know, all of the back end tests were expecting an integer. Mm -hmm. um, and the front end tests were expecting to be able to send a string, mm -hmm. you know. Um, and because there wasn't an integration test to check what happens when the front end sends a string instead of an integer. Um, mm -hmm. That actually resulted in, in at least temporary data loss. Um, um, so if you were building that all in one application, or if, one, if just one developer was building both the front end and the back end, mm -hmm. they might know, OK, they, these things need to be the same type. Um, I see. Uh, so you know, simple things like that, like, oh, we need to make sure that uh, we're communicating between teams. Uh, mm -hmm. It gets a lot harder. Oh, with microservices. Right. When you separate teams out to align with your microservices, yeah. you really have to make sure you're communicating well across those teams. Yeah, definitely. So let's move on to another topic. Recently, I attended DockerCon, which is the conference about Docker. Mm -hmm. And there was a panel that focused on open source and contributing to open source. Mm -hmm. I think mainly because uh, Docker is open source. So I'm wondering, have you contributed to open source projects? I have contributed before, uh, mm -hmm. not as much as I would like to, mm -hmm. um, mostly because I try to, I spend a lot of time at work working on stuff. And mm -hmm. I try to not work on too much work stuff at home. Oh, I see. Um, what kind of projects were those when you contributed? Sure. Uh, most of the time when I've contributed, it was for helping maybe update documentation. Uh, mm -hmm. So maybe for a library that I was using and I was trying to use it and the documentation wasn't clear. Oh, um, so yeah. sometimes I thought, oh, let me suggest a, a pull request that mm -hmm. clarifies this documentation so that mm -hmm. somebody else, when they come to read this, they don't have as hard a time as I do. Yes, definitely. So. Uh, in those experiences that you had, did you ever find it that it wasn't inclusive or it was inclusive? Because in this panel, they also talked a lot about making open source more inclusive for women. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if you noticed anything at all or. Sure. 
I will say that the the very few cases where I mm-hmm. where I had opened up a pull request um, mm-hmm. that was unsolicited, I everyone was very nice. I will just say that. Um, oh, okay. But I will say that I had a lot of anxiety about opening those pull requests. Um, Why? Because I had he- I had heard all the stories and I was afraid that I was going to make a suggestion and someone was going to criticize me for it or be mean or say you know, you wasted your time. We don't want this, you know, that those sorts of things. Yes. Um, So I was very nervous. And you do see those things happening. Yes. That's why I was wondering if you had encountered some of those things. I think I just haven't opened up enough pull requests to encounter those things Uh, yet. Okay. How do you think those issues can be solved? Do, Do you have any thoughts on it? Sure. I think it's a matter of prioritizing being a good community. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the priority right now for most people is just to, you know, deliver code. Um, yes. Or, or you know, promote people based on, you know, a, a viewed merit. So like a meritocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't really believe in a meritocracy uh, because... Mm-hmm. Things are so sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, people are have privileges that make it easier to open up a pull request, um, mm-hmm. and so I don't think everyone is on the same footing when they're opening a pull request. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think in when you see a lot of these open source communities, people say, "Oh, well, just the best code wins, like the best developer wins, and that's all we care about." Mm-hmm. Um, but I think what you define as the best is very subjective. So, mm-hmm. so mostly as long as the there's a good community and most of the people follow certain good values. Right. I think it's a matter of prioritizing that um, mm-hmm. over, you know, just shipping the most code. <laughs> yes, definitely. That's a great suggestion. Well, Vlai, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. It it was great to have you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.